Amen. Amen. If you've been following along with us in our series, you may remember that last week Pastor Joe uh, left off teaching us about how Jesus learned obedience. The Son of God himself, who was perfect in every way, had to come and apprentice as a human, right, and learn how to obey God. And we're going to pick up today, and we're going to carry a similar truth in our passage, starting in chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, through the end of chapter 6. I invite you along, if you have a Bible, please open it up, read it along with me. Let these words run, see them with your own eyes and let them run over your own heart. If you don't have a Bible, get your phone, Google it, Google Hebrews chapter 5, you'll be able to find it immediately. Please listen to the word of God. We have a great deal to say about this. And it is difficult to explain, since you have become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness, because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding Him up to contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and at the end will be burned. Even though we are speaking this way, dearly loved friends, in your case, we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end, so that you won't become lazy, 
but we'll be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. He said, I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And for them, a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise. He guaranteed it with an oath so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner, because he has become a, a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need your help today. We are going to be climbing Mount Everest, it feels like, and we don't know where the strength is going to come, both for me to even preach this word in a way that does it any justice, but for, for those that are here tonight, those who are listening later, Lord, that they would be able to accept this word from you, to ingest it into their lives and be transformed. Lord, I pray for your help for all of us that we wouldn't just come to your word today and be hearers only, but would you, by your grace and your spirit, help us to be transformed doers. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, as many of you know, I grew up in Alaska, and as a result, I was afforded opportunities that many of you haven't had, Although, being in Gloucester City, you're probably familiar with some things. I had the opportunity to work on a commercial fishing boat as a teenager in high school. In my second year as working on the fishing boat, I was 15 or 16 years old, and I was working about 20 hours a day. You know, grown man hours, and I had grown man responsibilities. And I was tasked nightly with doing a wheel watch that lasted about four hours. And there was a, a tool on, in the wheelhouse that was there to hold the person doing wheel watch accountable. It's called a deck alarm. Now, the, the concept of a deck alarm is that it's a countdown timer. Say you set it for 30 minutes, and it begins to count down. And when it gets to about 10 minutes, there'll be a light that starts flashing once a minute. And then it gets down to three minutes, and now every 30 seconds, that light flashes. When it gets down to a minute, 
It's like every 10 seconds. And when it's down to 10 seconds, it's flashing. And if you don't push the button before the time runs out, it will set off an alarm, both in the wheelhouse and in the, the captain's quarters. Obviously, important accountability. Everyone's life and livelihood depends on you safely allowing this boat to get from point A to point B. Well, I had this brilliant idea. I was really tired. And you, you can, if, there's a, if you have the key to this deck alarm, you can make sure that the alarm doesn't go off in the captain's quarters and instead it goes off only in the wheelhouse. I was really tired and so I decided to use that deck alarm as my alarm clock. You might be able to figure out where this is going. And so I set it for 10 minutes and the first time, I think I woke up, reset the timer, everything's clear. I've got a long stretch of water in front of me, no rocks, no boats. The next time I wake up, though, I see trees. <laughs> and I've been jolted awake by the fact that I ran this $180,000 boat aground. If you hadn't noticed yet, in the book of Hebrews, there's an alarm that's been going off. Right? Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, exhortations. You need to live this now. You need to hold firm to your hope. And as we come now to this passage, it is like that, that alarm is sounding like... It's not sounding yet, but that light is flashing. Hey, I need to get your attention. I think some of us have grown used to using the alarm the same way that I did and ultimately ran aground. We'll ignore the alarm until it's too late. And the seriousness of the tone with which the author of Hebrews now speaks to his audience is so severe and so harsh it could catch you off guard. But don't mistake his harshness for a lack of love because that's not true. He is impassioned for these people that he dearly loves. In fact, in, in verse 9, he calls them dearly loved friends. He is concerned for their souls. And the main truth that we need to take away from tonight's passage is this. We learn obedience through hardship. Just like Jesus did in our last passage in chapter 5, that Jesus had to learn obedience from what he suffered. The thing that we're going to see here in this passage tonight is that we, too, have to learn obedience through hardship. 
So I want to walk through this passage and I want to learn from the author of Hebrews, how do we do that? How do we obey in hardship? And the first thing that I want us to see is that the truth we fail to live now prevents us from knowing the truth we'll need tomorrow. Let me say that again. The truth we fail to live now prevents us from knowing the truth we'll need tomorrow. You see, in verse 11 of chapter 5, he warns them. He says, you have become too lazy to understand. And he says in verse 12 that they needed to be retaught the basic principles of God's Word. And, and the result then in verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 14, well, 13 and 14, <laughs> is that solid food is for the mature, not the infant. The author of Hebrews needed to teach some new truths to these believers who were enduring through persecution and hardship. And what he found is that he could go no further because these believers had become lazy and they had stopped working to advance in their faith and in their understanding of who Jesus was. I like to think of the context here a little bit. The suffering of the Hebrew Christians likely created what, what a lot of theologians have called the dark night of the soul. R.C. Sproul says, the phenomenon described as the dark night of the soul is a malady that the greatest of Christians have suffered from time to time. It was a malady that provoked David to soak his pillow with tears. It was the malady that earned for Jeremiah the term, the weeping prophet. It was the malady that so afflicted Martin Luther that his melancholy threatened to destroy him. This is no ordinary fit of depression, but it is a depression that is linked to a crisis of faith. A crisis that comes when one senses the absence of God or gives rise to a feeling of abandonment by Him. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt that sense of aloneness that God has abandoned you at the point where your life has completely shattered and you don't know which way to turn? You don't even know how to talk to God. You're not even sure that He's there. What has He done? Why have you left me? This is, this is where the author of Hebrews is coming to these Christians. They are probably overwhelmed. They don't even know how to pray. Their, their, their hearts hurt and ache. And in that moment, they have forgotten the basic principles that they had been taught from their, the moment of their becoming Christians. 
And what were those principles? Well, Hebrews tells us in, in chapter 6, in verse, starting in verse 1, he says that there had been a, laid a foundation in their lives of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, which I take this to mean like performance isn't the basis of your salvation. Laying on of hands. This, I think, refers to the community of believers that shared the burdens together. And the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. This is the story of the gospel and the hope that we have over death. Apparently, in the, the pressure of their circumstances, these believers had turned away from their own source of life, these basic principles. Of repentance from dead works, faith in God, performance, community, and the end of the story, hope. I had a situation yesterday that left me deeply frustrated. I felt betrayed and I was angry. I was trying to write this sermon and I just felt all jammed up inside. I couldn't think. I didn't even know how to feel. And as I was sitting there trying to figure out what I was going to do, I realized that I was doing the exact same thing that the author of Hebrews is addressing. To these Hebrew believers. I was there in my emotions, in my situation, trying to figure this out on my own. And God confronted me and said, are you going to turn to me and are you going to trust me? And so I knew, I knew I needed to pray. And I went out for a walk and just began to, to ask God how to even verbalize my emotions and what I was feeling. I was angry. I didn't know what to say. I needed him, but I didn't even know how to go to him. It was like I had forgotten how to obey God at the moment that I most needed to. And because I failed to live the truth that I knew, there was no way to get to the other side of this trial and see where God was leading me and what he wanted me to do and what he wanted me to learn. We often think when we read this passage, we're thinking these are apostate believers. They have turned their back on Jesus and there's this hard and fast line in the sand. But I would suggest that maybe that's not the case. That maybe there's been this more gradual reality that started on the inside of them that was soon going to manifest itself outside of them. That because they weren't obeying these basic principles of repentance from dead works, faith in God, performance, community, and the end of the story, hope that they were in danger 
of losing their own souls. What we fail to live inside of us, when that emotional crisis starts, will become the reality that everyone sees on the outside. And the author of Hebrews basically says the same thing. He says, basically, you're moving either closer to Jesus or you're moving farther away. Right? There's no in-between in our own faith. If you have grown lazy in your faith, if at the moment when you need to start exercising those muscles, you said, no, this is too hard. I'm not going to try. Your soul has started moving away from the one who gives you life. Away from the one who can help you get through this trial, this predicament, this situation that you're in. Honestly, the next part of this passage scares me. It's a difficult passage. And I want to first lay the ground that there's some other places in Scripture that I think can help us understand um, this passage. First, I would refer to the parable of the sower. Right? We all remember that there's these different types of soil and in one case, the seed is dropped and the birds come and eat the soil, or I'm sorry, eat the seed. And then in another situation, the, the seed seems to take root and thrive and grow. And then what happens? The thorns and the weeds grow up and, and, and kill that, that plant. I would also refer you to the passage that I preached a while ago on Psalm 1. There can be a, 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 prog, a, a direction of our lives that when we begin to listen and follow the advice of wrong people, we can move from being in a place of blessing to really being in the seat of the scoffer teaching other people to hate the God that we once found joy in. Let me read this warning passage. Starting in verse 4. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away, this is because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding Him up to contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and at the end, will be burned. If you are not obeying Jesus, then the warning is for you. 
re-crucifying Jesus. Basically, picture the cross. For those who are Christians, the cross is the greatest uh, sign, if you will, picture of blessing. Because on the cross, Jesus died in my place. And, and now I have life and forgiveness, things that I couldn't achieve on my own. But for a completely different set of people, the cross is shame. It was a tool of shame on which they crucified Jesus. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine having tasted the goodness of God and then one day, little by little, gotten to the point where you're re-crucifying? Where you've basically said, you deserve to die and it's not for me, but as a moment of shame for you. Jesus calls us to pick up our cross and to follow him. I've shared in different ways my own story, my many losses, and obviously much pain. If I'm honest, I haven't always obeyed Jesus in those inner places of my own soul of taking my emotions and hurts and sorting them out with God. I'm slowly learning, though, that there's no avoiding the pain. I have to pick up my cross and follow him. And trust that like Jesus, he'll, he'll use that that particular point of pain that Satan intends to use for your evil, and like Jesus, turn it into a great blessing for others. I believe that the crosses that we care, are called to carry can function in one of two ways, just like they did with Jesus. Either they can be a source of blessing when God shows up and works like he did with Jesus, or it can be our point of shame. And maybe this leaves you worried and asking questions. Like, how can you question someone's salvation? Which is what the author of Hebrews seems to be doing. Isn't that between them and God? And I think we have to wrestle with this question. The author of Hebrews has kind of put us on the knife's edge and says, you need to shape up. But how does that jive with everything that we've we've discussed before that, that Jesus is the high priest who has entered into the presence of God? And because he's gone there, he's going to take us. How do those fit together? Maybe you, have a, you grew up in a family of Christians for generations. You grew up in the faith. 
Maybe you came to Christianity as like a, as a, you, you assessed all the different religions that were out there and just said, Christianity is the best one. I'm choosing that one. And there's a lot of different ways in which we come to define ourselves as Christian or not Christian, but those things in no way truly define the state of our soul. Honestly, even as the author warns this audience that they should examine their souls, he never positions himself as the one knowing the status of their souls. Instead, in, in, in verse 9, he turns to them, his tone changes, and he says, even though we are speaking in this way, dearly beloved friends, in your case, we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. And he goes on to say, for God is not unjust, he will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. And this is what, in essence, the author of Hebrews lives out and demonstrates to us that how, do we, how can we begin to even know whether the state of someone's soul, it's this, our obedience demonstrates our faith. He's convinced of their salvation because they were serving the saints in prison and even continued to serve when they were threatened with imprisonment themselves. God's greatest gifts to us are not full bank accounts, easy relationships, and easy waters but those circumstances that shatter our view of our own lives again and again and leave us to comb through the wreckage to remember what is most important in life. Jesus isn't asking of us a perfection. He isn't asking us to, like, just get stronger here. Like, come on, pull it together. In fact, I think the, the beauty of this passage is that, that maybe there are those people who are demonstrating obedience through faith in ways that we can't see, and yet he does. Right? Have you ever gone to the gym, and you see on one side of the gym, there's those guys, they're lifting like 400 pounds. And you, you would think, yeah, those guys are going to heaven. And then there's that person over in the corner, you know, timidly, like, looking over the shoulder. And they're, like, trying to lift that five pounds. Obedience is not about muscling our way into heaven. It is about trusting God in the, the greatest difficulties in our lives, the darkest places that leave us shattered and bewildered, and we feel like God has abandoned us, just like Jesus when he was in the garden, and he was pouring out his soul to God, please take this away from me. Or as he hung on the cross and said, why have you forsaken me? 
And sometimes our faith expressed in those situations is like a, a little pipsqueak of a, of, a, of a strain. Lord, please show up. Help me. This passage has led me to cry many tears this weekend. You know, when I was a baby, before I could speak, the first word that I learned was goodbye. The language of my youth was loss and loneliness. The ongoing pain of all that was is the cross that God has called me to carry. And I believe that there are many of us who are called to carry crosses. In fact, we all are. And if you're like me, there's, those crosses are things that sometimes we set down and we walk around it and say, why this cross, Lord? Why do I got to carry this one? I want to carry that one instead. And we're, we're just frustrated that God has put this on us and we, tr we keep trying to find ways to get around having to pick up that cross and carry it. And so we turn to drugs, we turn to sex, we turn to all sorts of addiction. We disassociate, we try to just remove the emotion and act like it doesn't exist and go create different lives. But it's always there waiting. You can advance no further in your faith than where you last left that cross. You can perform and act like you've got it all together and walk down the, the roadways, but you're going to have to go back. And you're going to have to pick it up because that is where you are. That is your point of maturity. And you are not going to learn new things in the faith until you learn to obey with the things that He's given you. We don't have time to break down this final paragraph, but it's, it might be the most important paragraph in this whole chapter. And basically, this is what it says. It says that a long time ago, God made a contract. And I'm a businessman. I make contracts all the time. And the way contracts normally work is that there is an agreement of obligation between two people. One person says, I want your service, and the other person says, I want this much money. And if one of the parties fails to meet their obligation, then they're liable for any losses to the other party. And you can be taken to court and be paid to, made to pay more money. But God establishes a contract a long time ago, we call it a covenant in scripture, with a man named Abraham. And the way that this was normally done is that an animal was cut in half, and both parties were required to walk between the two halves. But this particular instance was uniquely different. Instead of both parties walking through between the two animals to signify the covenant, God walked through alone. 
Because if Abraham had walked through, there would have been a weak link in this covenant because the demands of the covenant could not be met by Abraham. There was no way that he could meet the expectations and the demands of this covenant. God took it on himself. And this is the beauty of what this passage says. He says he made this, this covenant with himself. So that there would be two unchangeable things. First of all, God can't change and he can't lie. If he says he's going to do something, then it's going to happen. And that, that promise was this, I will indeed bless you. And I will greatly multiply you. And ultimately, this refers to Jesus. Ultimately, this refers to Jesus filling our place in the contract for, of him coming and meeting the full demands of the law and dying in our place so that we could receive forgiveness of sin. And also, new life. And Jesus was blessed by God and was given a name and seated at the right hand of God the Father himself. Why do we say, why am I saying all that? One day, you're gonna, we're going to look back on our earthly lives. And amongst all the shattered pieces of what you thought your life should be, you're going to see Jesus. It was Jesus who carried you all the way through it. It's not the strength of your faith. It is the object of your faith. It is Jesus who is the strong one in this relationship. It is Jesus, the, the, the one who's going to complete your faith. It's Jesus that's going to carry you across the finish line. And no matter how difficult that cross, no matter how you feel like you can only take it an inch, you know what? One day, Jesus is going to take that cross and he's going to help you take, carry it all the way. He's going to meet the full demands for you. Family, let's not give up. Let's hold on. If we hold on, the greater reality is that he is holding on to us. The tears that I cried this, this weekend were not necessarily tears of sadness. They were tears of joy. Tears of awe. That he could take the wreckage of my life and turn it into something so completely better than I could have imagined. Let's look to him. Let's trust him. Let's not depart from the basic principles of God's word. Amen? Let's pray. Father, many have tried to run the race, thinking that they could do it in their own strength, thinking that uh, if they looked a certain way, that if they uh, just put more muscle, went to the gym more, that they could make you happy with them.
And the, the, the truth and the reality is, is that every effort on your own leaves us completely hollow and shallow and dead on the inside. No, we need you, Jesus. And I pray that we would abandon all of our efforts to fix our own lives, to achieve all that we think that we need to achieve and embrace Jesus alone as, our, as the source of our life and the source of our hope and the source of our joy. Lord, to those who feel absolutely shattered right now, who feel alone, like you've abandoned them. God, would you, with this truth, with the, the reality that Jesus finishes what he starts, that he's not going to leave them behind, fill them with joy and peace, even in the midst of their brokenness and sadness. Lord, at the end of the day, the only thing that we're going to hold on to is you, Jesus.